Sunday. So, um, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 11. I think I wrote um, something shorter than that in uh, the bulletin. But we'll read Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and then uh, quickly a couple of verses from Galatians 4. If you're able, let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. And then Galatians four uh, verses four and five, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would be at work in our own hearts and minds now. Uh, that we might hear and know and understand Your Word, but more importantly, that You might encourage us by it, strengthen our faith by it, uh, use it to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we ask all of this. Amen. You may be seated. So this morning as we're uh, looking at the Apostles' Creed, uh, the phrase that we are looking at this morning, um, uh, who was conceived, talking about Jesus, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. Uh, that much of uh, the uh, Apostles' Creed this morning. I don't know if you've ever considered somebody came to you and said, What's the most significant event in the history of the United States? Okay, let's, let's make post-Declaration of Independence, post-Constitution, okay? The most significant event in the history of the United States. I mean, there are all kinds of things that might go through your mind. Perhaps many of you run straight to September 11th. And you don't, you don't have to say anything more than that. We all know exactly what... September 11th means. Uh, you may go to World War I or II. 
Uh, you could always throw in some natural disaster like Hurricane Katrina. Uh, there are all sorts of things that we have endured in the history of this country that affect, that have sort of affected the landscape of our, of the United States, of our country. Things that have had major impacts on the direction of human history in the United States. What if instead we said, okay, now instead of the U.S., what if we do that for the world? Okay, post-creation, uh, we'll, we'll assume that creation is a pretty significant event in the life of the world. Um, but there are also, you know, world wars. I mean, you, you go back to all the, the great battles and all the, the conquerings and deconquerings and reconquerings that went on in the you know, couple of centuries leading up to Christ or the couple of centuries afterwards. But you know, the reality is every classroom in the world is affected by one event. Every history classroom that has a timeline up around the room you go to an elementary school and they've got a history, they've kind of got the history of the world up around the wall. Or if you look at any timeline ever, there's one event that affects every single one of them. Now, for years, we called the two sort of eras B.C. and A.D. The birth of Christ separating them. B.C. before Christ, A.D. Anno Domine, the year of our Lord Christ, the birth of Christ is the one event that affects every timeline everywhere. You say, oh, but we don't use that language. Now we use BCE and CE as the common era and before the common era. Okay, that's fine. What separates them? Still the birth of Jesus. So you may have changed the terminology, but it's still the one event that affects the way we call Everything in the world, throughout all of history. And what we realize, even in our confession, in our affirmation of faith, even in our uh, Apostles' Creed, that we are affirming, first of all, the historicity of Jesus. Every calendar system, every dating system that we use hinges on, it turns on the birth of Christ. No other person, no other event can claim that. And when we recite the creed together, we are affirming, we are confessing the historicity of Jesus. You need to understand that Christianity is grounded in real events. That it is grounded in real, actual history. Notice, for example, there are five persons, and I'm using that word intentionally, there are five persons mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. Three of them are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The other two are Mary, and you kind of get that. And Pontius Pilate, the bad guy, right? I mean, you're, you're kind of thinking, have you ever thought about the fact that the bad guy, the guy who is 
responsible for, okay, we'll let this guy go and we'll send this guy to the cross. The guy who had that authority is forever etched in our Apostles' Creed. Now, i got to be honest with you. If I were writing a creed, the bad guy gets no acknowledgement, no representation at all. Right? I want the bad guy to fade into history. I want the bad guy to be forgotten. And I don't include Pontius Pilate in the Apostles' Creed. And yet, every single time, the one of two mere humans that we talk about, one is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And, and you, you understand now, the other one is the one who said, send Jesus to the cross. Have you ever thought about that? Does that not sound odd to you? He had no real reason for doing so. He admits as much. He washes his hands of the whole thing. He says, I find no guilt in this man. He didn't see any reason to crucify Jesus. He caved to the pressure of the masses of the people. So how does Pontius Pilate make it into the Apostles' Creed? Well, the reality is he's dateable. Now, I don't mean he's available and single and you could... I mean that you can, you can find any history book in the world. Go dig through ancient Rome artifacts. He shows up. He's a real, live human being that even Rome acknowledges. They acknowledge he existed. They acknowledge his role. They acknowledge what he did. He's in all the, the, the history books. And you can find a date for him. Not someone to go out with. But on a timeline. He lived on these dates. He lived from here to here or roughly in that time span. They admit, yes, we had a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate. We know when he served. We know when he was the governor. We have decrees that he issued. We, we know all of those things. Historians can't and won't argue with those facts. It's true that he governed Jerusalem for a time. But it's also true as you read through the New Testament. Nobody says Jesus wasn't raised. Nobody says the tomb wasn't empty. Nobody in Scripture. I mean, think of all the possibilities, all the people that could have gone and checked the tomb and said, Peter, John, you ran to the wrong tomb. Nobody makes that claim at all. There are no Romans. There are no Christians. There are no Jews uh, claiming that that Pontius Pilate didn't exist, uh, that the events of um, the crucifixion uh, and those dates didn't exist. Nobody's saying Jesus wasn't crucified. The problem for historians isn't was Jesus crucified. The problem is, was he raised from the dead? And so the point is that the, the picture then is in the Apostles' Creed that we see the historicity of Jesus. He was a real historical 
event. Here's why that's an encouragement to you. There are all sorts of people out there who will say that religion, that Christianity is just a blind leap of faith. You have this fear, you have this danger in your mind that thinking faith means a more educated guess than these other things. It's sort of Pascal's wager. Well, I'm going to I'm going to choose to bet on this because these other things if they're wrong, then that's more dangerous to me and and these other things seem likely. So, I'm just going to guess that this is probably the most likely thing. What you're what you're realizing is that the the Apostles' Creed says Christianity is not a blind leap of faith. That it's actually grounded in real, the course of real human events. Our faith isn't a blind leap into darkness, but it's grounded in real history. It's not a, it's not a guess better than most. It's a trust in real events. Faith in Christ is not blind. Faith in Christ isn't simply wishful thinking. It doesn't lack a reasonable foundation. We're confessing the historicity of Jesus. But notice we're also confessing the humiliation of Jesus. I assume, I don't want to put ideas into pregnant mom's heads, but I assume that in the next couple of weeks and then a few months down the road after that, there will be pictures of newborn babies all over Facebook. That's what we do these days, right? Babies are born. You post pictures on Facebook, on Instagram. Uh, it's a it's a cause for celebration. It's a cause for everybody to to rejoice and celebrate these births together. But think about the birth of Jesus for a second. It's completely different from any other birth. Now I don't. Um, It's just a completely different birth from every other. There's a stable. There's a a mom who's a virgin. Um, That sets it apart from every other human birth. The birth announcement at Christmas was not exactly Facebook. Facebook's good. But a couple thousand angels in the sky, that's pretty impressive. A star that guides people to Jesus, that's kind of cool. It's completely different from Facebook. It's, it's not your typical photo card. It's a sky full of angels announcing the birth of Jesus. But it's, those aren't the only ways His birth is different. With every human birth, a new life has been created. That wasn't true for Jesus. Jesus didn't start to exist. Well, the Son of God didn't start to exist at His birth, at that first Christmas morning. Because you notice we read in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, 
He's the one who created the universe, John 1 tells us. Everything exists because Jesus created it. And then He chose to humble Himself and become like us, to take on the form of man, to walk in the flesh. Emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus the man, Jesus born to Mary, began to exist then. But the Son of God is eternal. And Jesus is both human and divine as we saw uh, last Sunday. He takes on flesh. He becomes a man. He becomes something He wasn't before. He actually empties Himself by coming like... It's, it's such a stooping down to be like you and me that He's emptying Himself. He doesn't stop being God. He's just so stooping down to take on flesh to become like the creation. He who knew no beginning was conceived in the womb of a virgin and born of her. You and I, when we have children, children are, are, those children are sort of taking a huge step up, as it were. They, they begin to exist at conception. That's a, that's a new life. That's a, a new being, a new person being created. And then they're born and they, t- they, they take a huge step up. They, they come out like the people. They're people. For Jesus... It's actually a huge step down. That's not an improvement for Jesus. It's actually a step down to become like the Creator became the creation. The eternal, the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable became limited by space and time by taking on flesh and living in a body. The one who wrote and created the law became subject to it. You need to see this giant step down. What we call the humiliation of Christ on our behalf. A stepping down to become like us. He'd never known suffering until He became a man. He'd never known physical pain until He became a man. He'd never known uh, the kind of rebuke and scorn and He comes and takes on flesh and He subjects Himself to all of those things as He walks on this earth. Philippians 2 tells us He he emptied Himself by by taking. He emptied Himself by taking flesh, by adding something He had never been before. Jesus doesn't shed His divinity, but He does take on flesh and put on flesh and become a man. And that begins this sort of downward spiral. I hope you get the sense as you, as you read through the Apostles' Creed when you use it to affirm your faith, to confess your faith in Christ, I hope you can feel the weight of each phrase, of each Step as Jesus descends from eternally Son of God, conceived, born, died, buried, 
descended into hell. There's this constant, every step. It's like you and me walking down steps. Every single step gets lower and lower and lower. Conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried, descended into hell. You can hear this gradual humiliation, condescension of Christ for us. In fact, we just used a few minutes ago the, the question 27, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? And you, you can hear it over and over again, this each step downward that Christ took in our place. How far was Jesus willing to go to accomplish your salvation? As far as it took. Philippians 2 says he wouldn't, he wouldn't stop short of anything. He would go absolutely as far as it takes. And that means bleeding and dying and being buried for you and for me. You know, it's, you know this. It's the worst form of capital punishment ever envisioned, ever created. He was willing to actually go to the cross in our place. It was so bad that even, even, even the Romans in all their gore and all the things they could come up with, even they sort of reserved it for the most heinous of criminals. And the Romans wouldn't allow Roman citizens to be crucified that way. And you've got Romans converted to Christianity and, and they're the most difficult sort of pill for them to swallow is the fact that I'm following somebody who died the worst possible death ever created, ever thought of. You know, the, the guillotine, the guillotine, um, it was invented by, a, by somebody who wanted to create a more humane form of capital punishment. It was created by somebody who's whose goal, whose aim, whose intent was, um, okay, if we're going to carry out the death penalty, let's at least do it quickly and humanely. And, and in his mind, it, 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 you, you sever the head, it happens fast, it happens quick, and they're instantaneously done, and, and you're carrying out capital punishment, so be it, but at least let's do it in a, in a faster, more humane way. You and I, the reaction we have to the guillotine is, is just we recoil in pain and anguish and, and disgust at the thought of that. That's actually more humane than the cross. The cross is the exact opposite. It's intended to be not quick and painless and easy. It's intended to be public and slow and difficult. They wanted their, their criminals to suffer greatly. Philippians 2 tells us Jesus humbled Himself even as far as death on the cross, marked as one of the vilest offenders ever to have lived. But He goes beyond the cross. He actually suffered under the power of death for a time. He's buried. 
He goes to the place of the dead. We even say He descended into hell. It's that suffering the wrath and curse of God on the cross in our place. The extent of our sin deserves fire and judgment in hell for eternity. Christ had to suffer that for us. We need to understand the humiliation of Christ in our place. Because that humiliation also then reminds us that we confess the hope of Jesus. The historicity of Jesus, the humiliation of Jesus, and the hope of Jesus. You do know that facts alone don't save you. The fact that Jesus lived is not enough to save us from our sin. The gospel isn't simply being able to recount the facts. It's not simply being able to to recount, well, Jesus endured this and He endured that and He went through this and He went through that. and, And yes, I know those things historically happen. Some of you... Some of you have suffered physically in uh, very real ways in your lifetime. Some of you have suffered spiritually and emotionally in very real ways in in your lifetime. And we are frequently tempted to think nobody knows the trouble I've seen. It's so easy for us to think I'm the only one. Nobody knows the pain and the suffering that I'm going through. No one could possibly understand the struggle I'm having. The reality is the Bible tells us there actually is one. There's one who's suffered far greater than you have. To whom you can turn in hope. Because Jesus has suffered infinitely greater, infinitely more than you and I have ever suffered. Uh, We lose a a job and we think unfairly so. We we lose a a child or a parent or a sibling and, and we think that's just, they were way too young and that's just not fair, that's not right. We have children that have development problems or that 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 aren't developing the right way or forming correctly. Storms come and destroy our homes or damage our lives. Marriage is not the easy walk in the park we thought it was going to be. We don't know if there's a, a terrorist at school or a drunk driver on the way home from church today. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. You know how the rest of that song goes, right? Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody but Jesus. Why did Jesus go through all of this? He did it for you. And He did it for me. Jesus suffered greatly. Not just at the hands of the people. He suffered at the hands of the Father. Hanging on the cross and and crying out, Why have you forsaken me? 
as he suffers the pain and the anguish, the infinite weight of infinite sin of all his people throughout all space and time, in that one one moment, that guilt is on him. You and I don't know that kind of despair. You and I don't know that kind of pain. You and I don't know that kind of suffering. You and I don't know that kind of alone, aloneness. We have never suffered like that. The gospel isn't just knowing that Jesus died. The gospel is trusting that Jesus suffered and died for you. That just when you think you're going through dark providences in this world and and they're difficult and they're painful and you think you're alone and you think no one else can possibly suffer with you in this. All of these events, the humiliation of Christ, they all show us that He has suffered far more than we have. And He did it in your place. He did it to bring you hope. He did, he did it to bring you peace. He did it to bring you comfort and joy. If Jesus doesn't suffer the punishment for our sin, then we have to. Blood has to be shed for our sin. The real question is, will it be yours or will it be His? And if you're trusting in Him alone for your salvation, you have peace and comfort and hope in knowing and the encouragement of knowing that what you suffer in this life pales in comparison to what He suffered in your place on your behalf. We confess in the Creed that Jesus has suffered at the hands of men and endured the judgment of His Father and He's done so for us. In other words, when you're in the pit, when you're wallowing in the, the sort of muck and mire and pain and struggles and difficulties of this world, when you're caught in troubles that you are convinced nobody has possibly seen the, the sorrow and the pain and the, the struggle and the trouble that I am going through, no one could possibly understand. When you're there in that deep, when you're there in that depth, where will you turn? Because the Bible says your Savior knows it. And He's there for you. He's endured far more than we have. You call to Him. You run to Christ. He's suffered infinitely more than you and I can. And He's done so for us. Let's pray. Our great God and our King, you, in your infinite love and grace and mercy for us, sent your Son. Lord Jesus, you were faithful to the Father, knowing full well the cup of wrath and judgment you would drink in our place. Knowing the pain and the anguish that you would suffer, not just physically, but spiritually. Not just physically dying on a cross and being buried, but spiritually separated from the Father. Spiritually suffering the, the, the pain and wrath and justice of the Father that we deserve. Lord Jesus, we pray that You would strengthen our faith. 
That You would deepen our faith. And more importantly, that You would deepen our hope. We struggle. We suffer through the things of this world. We endure the struggles and difficulties of this life. And none of them are near what You have have faced. Spirit, we pray that You would be at work in our hearts to equip us for life in a fallen world because our Savior has suffered in our place. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.